navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the February 2020 episode of the Datascape Cloud Upgate podcast. This is the podcast where we distill the latest announcements from the leading public cloud vendors and help you know what matters. Our format is a casual interactive discussion with industry experts, and let's meet those experts now. Today, I'm also I'm joined by Pirig. Hey, Pirig, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Chris. Thanks for having me again. Great to have you, and Pirig will be discussing AWS as usual. I'm also joined by Warner Chavez, who will be discussing Azure. Hey, Warner, welcome back to the show. Hey, how are you, Chris? How is everybody listening to the Cloudscape? Happy to be back this beautiful, super cold Canadian morning. <laughs> and we're glad to have you as usual. And last but not least, Stefan, who will be discussing GCP. Hey, Stefan, welcome back. Good morning, Chris. Hi, guys. Great to uh, be here. It is. First episode of the year. We will start with AWS because although we'd intended, we just never got around to the reInvent special. So lots of uh, AWS updates to cover. Pirig, let's get started with AWS backup for EC2 instances. Right. So this is a, a new addition. So there's actually three subtopics here quickly, but the first one is actually quite interesting. So AWS backups always allowed you to schedule your EBS volumes backups. However, you're sometimes some customers, mostly customers who don't practice infrastructure as, as code or had a, a good DevOps practice, didn't really always know how to spin back up their instances. Some knowledge was lost during that backup because we weren't backing up, uh, for example, the AMI name that the instance was starting with. We didn't back up the networking settings, so what VPC we were running in, you know, what network address, the instance type. And also, more importantly, you know, the security groups and the service account that was running on the instance. And so these are all uh, new features that have been added as of a few weeks ago. And so now it's way more easy to restore a running instance that way. As a side note, though, there are two missing features at this time that I see are a bit problematic. But I know that AWS is on, working on these already, is to back up the, your instance metadata startup script. So that could be a quite important piece to consider in future evolutions of this product. A second uh, nice feature of uh, EFS backups this time, and it's still in AWS backups, is the ability to restore a single file. So before this was problematic, you had to pretty much restore your whole EFS, which was uh, long and time consuming to just go back uh, the error of just deleting a single file by a user, right? So this allows you to do that. So a good and interesting feature. And the other one uh, is a new feature brought to AWS backups is the ability to copy your backups from one region to another. So let's say until now, your backups weren't really protecting you against a complete region failure, mostly against a zonal beach failure. So now you can actually uh, schedule a copy of your backups from one region to another, and then you can recover your instances there. So that's a, a very nice feature. Yeah, so three new um, important features added to AWS backup. Excellent. No, I guess maybe I'm just feeling lazy or maybe I'm just really getting into the cloud way of thinking, but it feels like dispersing backups around regions is something that the cloud should just do for me. I shouldn't have to feel like I shouldn't have to think be the, the person that decides that. True. <laughs> True. And so, yeah, this is the, the ability to do that. to move across Well, you say that until somebody gets a line item on their bill that says geo-replicated backups and they say, what are you doing? I didn't say I wanted geo-replicated backups. Turn them off because I'd rather save, you know, $200 a month. Yeah. 
Good point. Good point. It's crazy what people will do. They say. On the theme of backups, it looks like Backup Explorer is a thing now. Warner, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so this is Azure's Backup Explorer. Right now it's in preview. And just to give everybody a quick overview before we dive into the Backup Explorer itself. So Backup in Azure is handled through this service called Azure Backup Vaults, which allows you to do VM backups or specific file backups or SQL database backups, for example. Anything that is uh, backupable. I just made up a word. And then the thing is, obviously, like everything that Microsoft makes, that the portal comes with like a dashboard and you can see what you got in your backup vault and what's consuming space and policies and all this stuff. But once you try to manage this at scale, usually what we see with a lot of enterprise clients is you don't just have like one subscription and one backup vault, especially because backup vaults are per region and that you can cross replicate through a paired region. But let's say if you're like, you know, you have a, an Azure region in the West US and another one in Germany, they're not gonna be replicating to each other, right? So you would have normally two backup vaults in that case. But then that also means that dashboarding experience or drill down experience or to see the alerts and whatnot is split between two different panes of glass, right? Because you have your backup vault that's in one place and the backup vault that's in the other. So to help with you know, management of backups at scale and also with people like us, for example, managed service providers that have you know, many subscriptions that we see for many clients across many tenants, they came up with this idea of the Backup Explorer, which basically aggregates into a single dashboard, single pane of glass, all the backup vault information that you have access to. So this will take all the backup info across subscriptions, across regions, even across tenants if you are like I said, like a service provider like us, for example, where you have accounts with multiple tenants, it can aggregate across tenants the backup information as well so that you get in one place, you can see all your backup vaults, you can drill down all your backup vaults, you can see all the logging, the monitoring, everything together in one spot. This is something that Microsoft has been investing quite a bit heavily. I think Microsoft and AWS have been investing very heavily on this, at least in the last few months, and is in all these features to basically manage cloud at scale, right? As they get clients that they're like, yeah, well, I'm in the cloud now, but like this is, is big, it's huge. It's like, I have even more data centers than I had before, technically, right? So they have been investing quite a bit in all these manageability at scale features. I think that's good and obviously, long way to go for all cloud providers, but that's exciting. So Stefan, coming to you, it looks like along the same vein, there's a new archive uh, storage offering from GCP. Absolutely, so it's called Archive. So adding on to the uh, existing one standard near line, cold line that we used to know. So this new archive class is designed for long-term data retention at a specific low price point. So relative to the existing storage classes, Archive is the best suited for data that is stored uh, for more than one year. So if you remember code line was, if you had data being accessed for less than one year, that was your preferred storage guide. Now with archive is that anything beyond one year should be actually stored within this archive class. So one of the good things that I like about the different storage classes in uh, GCP is that when you're retrieving objects from these different storage classes, so you're not going through a penalty to uh, actually retrieve the actual uh, information from there. So it uses the same instantaneous, kind of like millisecond access to get that data that you need. So 
very interesting that they've put in this new archive uh, class within their offering. So, and again, it's at a limited, very low price. I think we're talking about $1.23 per terabyte per month, depending on which region that you are. So I think it's a great offering. So it uses the same single API that you're used to for all the different storage classes. So a great addition to the family of storage within GCP. It sounds a lot like Glacier Storage from Amazon. Is it about the same thing? Kind of like similar, true. So it's really just, you know, designed for like cost effective, again, long-term preservation. If you get archival tapes that you want to store there, let's say videos or really stuff that you want to fire and forget for using these terms. So yeah, it is similar to what AWS is offering from a Glacier perspective. Okay. Sounds good. Um, as they go, they, you know, they love to leapfrog one another. Perry, it looks like there's a fairly important and urgent certificate related task you wanted to talk about. Yes, so there is a certificate authority at AWS that expires this year, so in March 2020. And so basically a lot of the RDS services, Aurora and DocumentDB and MongoDB certificates are basically going to expire. And so what AWS initially proposed was to auto-rotate those certificates and only have them kick in when people would reboot these instances. However, customer feedback wasn't really good to that approach. Uh, they rather have this be done manually because customers actually need to go into their client applications and install those certificates for these um, SSL and TLS handshakes to continue working properly. So it was a bit more work than just rebooting the instance. And so, you know, customers might have thought, oh, I just need to reboot and I'm good. No, there's actually an extra step. You need to pull out the client certificate and go and install it in your applications. And so this is probably a safer approach. And it's something important that needs to be done. And keep in mind that you need to do this early in 2020 and prepare yourself. You will need to do this again in 2025 and five years from now, the new CA that was created will expire again. And so we'll have to start this again. Sounds good. Warner, On the, continuing on with the theme of expiration, one of the greats is, uh, is going away. Why don't you tell us more about it? Yes, so everybody, we're uh, about to finally say goodbye to Windows. Well, no, we're not going to say goodbye to Windows 2008 because the truth is that a lot of people are still going to run it, but Windows 2008 is officially now out of support. Not just Windows Server 2008, but also Windows Server 2008 R2, which came out, uh, I believe, about uh, 18 to 24 months after 2008 came out. But regardless, they're both going out of support right now. Obviously, recommended path is just to take whatever you're running there and put it in a newer version of Windows, right? Windows Server 2019, which is just was released uh, a couple of months ago. Obviously, there's a problem there with people that likely just don't have the means, time, or even a vendor that is willing to upgrade their software to work on a newer version of Windows. That happens all the time couple of options, obviously. I mean, you can run unsupported, which is not recommended, especially because of the security aspect of it and the fact that Microsoft is not going to release any more security patches for it. But as always, they are trying to entice people and put the carrot in Azure. So if you decide to migrate that particular Windows 2008 workload into Azure, then they will give you of three years of extended security updates, right? So it allows you to pretty much extend your runway, which is, you know, a classic Microsoft tactic, take advantage of their existing clients and 
give them a little bit of extra if they want to move into Azure, which actually it works pretty well. I mean, we have so many clients that have taken advantage of all of these. You know, if you go to Azure, you get this extra thing offers either Windows Server or with SQL Server, for example. Yeah, lots of benefits there. So something that some people might want to consider. Obviously, we don't really recommend that you stay forever in Windows 2008 anyway. And now it's officially out of support. Well, that's quite a run. I mean, that's about 12 years, right, of an operating system. Like, that's, that's pretty decent. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, if you go online, there's people that are still mad that Microsoft's not releasing security updates for Windows XP, but, you know, they got to draw the line at some point. Right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, another Windows topic for Stefan. Let's talk about GKE. Yeah, on that same topic, as uh, Warner was mentioning, so for the folks that are uh, either still running 2008 R2, why don't come in on a GCP platform and use GKE for these legacy applications? Uh, so the promise of Kubernetes was to really to make management easy and ambiguous too. So up to recently, the benefits of Kubernetes were only limited to the Linux-based applications, true. So type of like preventing enterprise applications running on Windows from taking advantage of the agility and speed of deployment that Kubernetes um, brings to the table. So now with GKE on uh, GCP, Windows becomes a first-class citizen, true? So an hosting and modernized server-based application running on GCP. So it's just to demonstrate the value and then what Google's trying to do, true? So if you look at the latest edition, so now, you know, you can bring your Windows servers, bring your own licenses. You can actually run several containers in different nodes, SQL Server, Cloud SQL, Active Directory in GCP. So you're seeing the... Uh, the trend here. So this is great, true. So the goodness is coming to Kubernetes enabling Windows apps, true. So so it's in beta. It's on the actual support of the latest version. I think it's 1.16.4. The good thing is that these Windows containers can actually run side by side in the same cluster as Linux containers. Um, so it includes several features that are help uh, aim to meet the security, scalability needs, and integration of management needs that the customers are looking through. So great addition. There's a couple of features. I recommend highly that people go on the actual order on the documents in Google to get the, the latest and uh, try them out. So another great addition to the GCP family. Yeah, absolutely. They're definitely uh, welcoming Microsoft uh, software more and more, which I like to see. It makes a nice, credible offer. Let's come back to Peerig and sticking on that Microsoft theme. Why don't you talk about the new BYOL offerings on AWS? Right, so um, AWS just made a nice improvement to management of uh, Microsoft Windows servers and SQL Server licenses. And so now in your AWS organization panel, you're gonna have a new sub-panel called the licenses. And so you can actually have your system admin or whoever's in charge of your licensing to come in and replicate those license numbers and make them available to your AMIs directly. And so the licensing information gets populated automatically on the fly in those images when you start them off. But that's not only it, it actually allows you to, it integrates with IAM, so you can delegate these different license packs to different uh, members of your organization. So let's say you have you know, a volume license for your big data team, a volume license for this web team, et cetera, and so on. And so you can dispatch that that way and make them pretty much autonomous. And of course, the purpose here is, you know, the Windows AMIs and SQL Server AMIs come embedded with licensing in AWS. So you might ask why this feature? Well, simply because this allows you to leverage your existing volume licenses, bring them to the cloud. And also you 
you know, in general, you probably get better deals on volume licensing directly talking to Microsoft rather than going through um, AWS. So a very nice option there for customers using Windows products. Or if you pay for software insurance and you have license mobility, right? Yeah. Basically, license mobility is part of software assurance. And some people think that it only applies to Azure, but it doesn't, right? As long as you pay for software assurance, I mean, you want to run, like Stefan just said, you want to run on JKE, you want to run your license on AWS, it's up to you, but you have to pay for software assurance, of course, right? <laughs> There's always yeah. a catch. But then it That's makes good. it a lot easier, like Perry was saying, right? Like maybe yeah. you have a big EA and you just want to, you know, apply your license mobility. I mean, you're paying for it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And just so amazed. And there must be a lot of caveats that maybe we don't know, but all that licensing perspective on the multi-cloud vendors. Anyway, it just amazed me on how you need to go really deep and understand the intricacies of being able to transpose licenses of your purchase software. So anyway, that would be worthwhile maybe to have another dis great discussion to just talk oh, about licensing. You're, you're lucky we're not even covering Oracle. Yeah, well, <laughs> well exactly. we actually did cover Oracle on the podcast, I think, in an earlier episode, and it was a whole hour, and it was just about the Amazon changes to the way they did the core licensing. I could see AWS, you know, using this new feature for other third-party products in the future quite quite easily, right? Yep. Yeah, it's true. I mean, technically, you could apply it to anything, right? Yep. All right. Shifting to a little bit of a different topic, I found this one quite interesting, Warner. Why don't you talk about the sustainability calculator? Yeah, so I thought this was really interesting too. So Microsoft has created, like you said, a sustainability calculator that allows you to take your Azure subscription and it gives you the carbon emissions of your IT infrastructure. And it shows you the trend as well, whether you are consuming more or less energy and obviously producing some sort of carbon emission over time. And it also something that's kind of interesting. If Microsoft does a change in their data centers that optimizes or reduces the use of energy, you will also see in your sustainability calculator that you are getting a benefit of less emissions because Microsoft basically, I don't know, came up with some sort of better cooling solution or something like that. The sustainability calculator also is not, if you have a subscription, then you can just say, you know, I want you to calculate it. But you can also fill it up and say, you know, what if I had these many servers with these storage accounts and tell me what that would be. And it gives you an estimate of what your emissions would be. The idea there, of course, is that if you have an idea of what your on-prem emissions are, you can actually compare to what they would be if you were to migrate to the cloud, right? Now, I know that the percentage of people out there that actually know what their emissions are of their own on-premises infrastructure is probably really small. I know there are companies that actually dedicate themselves to do this type of green energy consulting that will tell you what your emissions estimated are based on your own on-premises footprint. But I mean, everybody here knows this is a hot topic nowadays. It's just a matter of time until we get some more government regulation on it as well in terms of like what people are allowed to like, you know, emit or consume in terms of energy. And, and IT obviously is a hot topic for easily, like how many of us know like companies that just run a blade somewhere that nobody uses it, but it's like, it's just running there permanently because nobody dares to 
turn it off type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought it's pretty interesting. I can see how down the line, like I said, probably maybe compliance regulations or anything like that, or maybe, you know, the industry will self-regulate as well. And people will just use this as part of their regular corporate goals as well, to just, you know, try to keep emissions as low as possible. The whole thing, like I said, is a big hot topic nowadays for many reasons, right? Yeah. Honestly, it's something I've rarely thought about. I mean, I've read a few articles about the different cloud vendors and their approaches to, you know, trying to minimize their impact on the environment. But I hadn't really thought about it from a day-to-day IT management perspective. So, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because we talk all, all the time about IT trying to optimize spend and optimize, you know, uptime and all these other SLAs. But how close are we to the day where IT also has to optimize carbon emissions? Right? Yeah. Like somebody's yeah. going to be actually having that as a KPI somewhere. It's yeah. like, dude, your carbon emissions went through the roof this month because of project whatever. Yeah. Right. I mean, that might be coming soon. Yeah, very neat idea. Let's stick with you, Warner, and cover the new Azure Migrate assessment. Yeah, so this is just uh, what I call quality of life type of improvement into an existing service. Basically, what it is is that, to give people an idea, Azure has a, a special migration service. It's basically just dedicated so that you can have a single place where you can look at your migration assessments, you can follow on your replication status if you're migrating VMs, migrating databases, and whatnot. Now, previously, the Azure Migrate was able to give you recommendations about, you know, if you're running this on-prem, we think this is what you should run in the cloud. And it was all done through a VM that you would download and run it in your hypervisor, right, VMware or Hyper-V, and it would extract the metadata from the machines. And then that file, you would upload it to Azure Migrate, and Azure Migrate would produce the output for you. Now. Some people didn't like the fact that they had to run uh, some VM in their own hypervisor to collect this info, and even though it actually automates the process, then now Microsoft basically came out with a manual way to do the process. So you have to follow a very simple schema they laid out to populate a CSV. I mean, you can do it with like Excel and then just save as a CSV. And basically makes you put in the size of the server, some of the specs, and you upload that file and the Azure Migrate will give you the same output as before, which is basically, you know, estimates the machines that you should run and the storage that you should pick and so on, right? So again, it's just for people that didn't want to run that Azure Migrate VM that kind of automates the whole process. Well, now they have a manual way to complete the same process, right? So again, it's just small quality of life there, improvement in the servers to just give you an option if for some reason you don't want to run that special stats collection vm cool stefan let's chat about some new maintenance controls added to cloud sql absolutely chris thank you so hey nobody likes downtime no matter how brief it is so one of the key features within the cloud sql within gcp is that um what they're introducing is top two requests that have been features that have been uh, asked from the communities, advanced notification of when these downtimes or maintenance is going to occur, and then the ability to reschedule some of these maintenance through. So just a brief overview. So what is maintenance through? So what happens is that you want your database to be stable and secure. So Cloud SQL as a managed service automatically apply patches and updates to your databases, be it MySQL, Postgres, or uh, SQL Server. So now, what it entices is that I mentioned earlier, so you can now receive notifications. It's just a matter of going to the console with the new Cloud SQL and then taking off that you want to be notified. Typically, these 
patches or downtime maintenance would usually occur on you choose the calendar fit or it is best for you. Usually, let's say on the weekend, off hours, late at night. These usually typically happen once every month. So you want to make sure that you're notified. So I think in a week in advance, what I've read is that you'll be notified. So if you don't do nothing, patch and then the security updates will apply to your instances or you can actually reschedule them through. So according to your needs on depending on the types of applications and and that you're running. And then if you can incur some downtime, minimal as it is, we'll just continue on. And, and then, so it's really just two small nifty features where in the good old days, whatever. So people were not warned when these updates were coming and then because of some of them were running mission critical applications on some of these instances, incurred downtime. So I think it's a great little way to help organizations that are running some of these managed instances in Cloud SQL to be alert and then be proactive on and decide what they want to do if they either want to go ahead and do the patching or whatever maintenance that needs to occur on these systems or just uh, lay back and relax and decide when they want to do it. That's cool. a great little feature. Yeah, I think so. Not only do people not like downtime, but they don't like surprise downtime <laughs> even more. Pierre, let's come back to you and talk about some new auto scaling options. Right. So Amazon ECS cluster now has long awaited, in my opinion, auto scaling feature that finally came to play. And so this allows you to, you know, how you set how much compute your resource or how much memory allocation you want to a container. Well, now ECS can actually leverage this as a metric to decide on auto scaling. So let's say that I run, you know, I have one unit of CPU and I spin up three containers of half units of CPU, then it will automatically auto scale for me to give me that 0.5 that was missing on my initial node. So a very interesting feature. Finally, something else than just looking at, you know, dumb CPU metrics to auto scale. So this gives you some flexibility there and guarantees that your CPU reservations and memory reservations will be honored. At the same time, this comes with a nice, interesting feature that I, I like quite a bit, I wanted to mention, is that new instances are protected from scaling in these auto-scaling operations. So let's say that at some point, the number of resources I need is lesser than before, then I'm not gonna scale the last instance I'm spun up, I'm actually gonna scale down the oldest instance that I have in my scaling group. And so this actually in combination with, let's say an image update in my instance group, this allows me to recycle and make sure that, you know, I'm gonna get rid of that older cluster node running an older image at the same time in my cluster. So a very interesting feature. Glad to see that, you know, more metrics are coming into play for auto scaling. Yeah, indeed. Similar, somewhat on the scaling vein, Warner, do you want to talk about the uh, new premium SSD enhancements Azure has? Yeah, so this is an infrastructure update of the month is a bursting, bursting capabilities of Azure premium SSD disks. So these are premium managed disks. And the difference here, of course, is that you are allowed to burst over your capacity over a certain period of time. And if you're not using the capacity, then you crew your credits type of thing. Now this capability is available only for the premium SSDs at this point. There's also standard SSDs, but those just have a set amount of bandwidth and IOPS. It's only the premium ones right now that are having, they've added burst capabilities. Right. They've introduced as well a few 
more premium SSD sizes. So previously they started at 32 gigs all the way to half a terabyte. And I guess apparently some customers thought 32 gigs were too big for their workloads. I guess it's a small amount of data with some high performance requirements. So now there's also four, eight and six gig premium SSD disks as well. And they all can burst as well if necessary. For example, an eight gig disk, I'm looking at a table here right now, which usually would just have a permanent provision bandwidth of 25 megabytes per sec, can burst for half an hour on 170 megabytes per sec, which is you know pretty decent improvements, about a 7x of throughput if necessary for, for 30 minutes. Then it goes back to baseline. But I mean, again, obviously, if you have something that is very sensitive to latency, then it's better to just you know, over-provision capacity. But if you have something that is kind of spiky and you know that you're okay with just having a burst every now and then, then these new bursting capabilities, I would assume would be a nice welcome feature for most people. Yeah, well, and I noticed when I read Microsoft's article on it, they also burst uh, OS boots, which I thought was pretty, pretty smart. Yeah, actually, yeah, they can apply it to an OS disk so obviously, you know, as, as soon as you boot, it can use just that bursting capability. So you boot a lot faster and then go back to regular baseline capability. Yeah. If that was the only thing it did, that would be, a, I think, a significant improvement. So, so good stuff. Let's come back to you, Stefan. It looks like Google was very busy updating, you know, BigQuery with some pretty exciting new features. A bunch to cover here. I'm just going to set you loose on them. Away you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. So, yeah, so continue on on some of the new uh, improvements on BigQuery just to make sure that everybody uh, get more of the features. So one interesting one is that Parquet and OCR are a really popular column in open source format for large-scale data and really for analytics. So as people move to the cloud, they can use BigQuery to analyze data stored in these formats. So, And when it comes to choosing or keeping these files either in cloud storage is this loading into BigQuery? That can become a uh, difficult decision. So depending on the size of the data the, uh, that you have, either Parquet and ORC. So for GCP and Google, to make it easier for a customer, so they've launched what they call a federated query support for Apache ORC and Parquet. I say Parquet, people say Parquet, whatever, so I use Parquet. Files that will be stored in cloud storage from BigQuery. So again, let me just reiterate. So it's a federated query that supports querying files that are in ORC and Parquet format in cloud storage from BigQuery using the standard SQL interface that everybody knows and come accustomed to use. So these features join other federated capabilities that was announced a couple months in the different shows that we had. So Abro, CSV support, Cloud Bigtable, Google Sheets also is one. So again, great addition that that has been available for customers. Other interesting stuff, as you mentioned, so the use of flat rate pricing for BigQuery reservations. This is in beta, and this is only available in the US and AU regions. So BigQuery reservations allows you to seamlessly purchase BigQuery slots, so you can take advantage of the flat rate pricing and manage BigQuery uh, spending with more complete predictability on your monthly incurring costs. So what BigQuery reservations allows you to do is really Purchase dedicated BigQuery slots by procuring commitment in a matter of seconds. I mean, just point and click. 
programmatically and dynamically distributed committed BigQuery slots to reservations for workload management purposes. And from use of assignments to assign Google Cloud projects, you in specific folders uh, within your entire landscape, within your GCP to organization and reservations, like I mentioned, to, for specific slots. The other interesting one is that it enabled to quickly analyze metadata. So remember the uh, when you needed to know the different column attributes for a table or which type of tables were actually belonging to specific data sets within BigQuery. So that became important too. So now what BigQuery enables you to use information schema. So this is how you can quickly tell how many tables that are in your data set. So essentially it's a, it's not necessarily a function, but it's an ability from a schema perspective to query metadata related to data sets and tables. True? So you can do that now programmatically instead of starting clicking everywhere within the BigQuery interface and get information metadata about these specific tables and data sets within BigQuery. I think it's a great additional, and this has been available for quite a while now in other RDBMS systems. If I know SQL Server very well, uh, information schema is one of the key topics where yeah. from a perspective. So something to, to keep in mind is, yeah, the information schema is standard, right? So technically the queries that you have against information schema on SQL Server should just run when you run them against BigQuery. It should just run when you run them against any other RDBMS that supports the standard information schema schema, yep. right? So that's pretty neat as well, right? Because then you can just say, oh, I already had a bunch of queries that pick the data types from columns and whatever, because I use SQL or I use Oracle or whatever. And then just copy paste, and it should probably work with very little modification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point, Warner. I haven't tried it yet, so maybe something that to do in the upcoming uh, is the point. Make sure that some of these are cross capable, either running, let's say, in SQL Server and BigQuery. But uh, to your point, yeah, it should be standard. I'm sure there's small intricacies that are maybe related to specific vendor-specific, let's say, metadata perspective on some of the actual schemas. So the other one, very quickly, is so now everybody knows that partitioning within BigQuery uh, used to all them to timestamp dates. So now uh, bringing you the ability now to use integers to be able to partition your table by integer range. So I think that's a great feature for some customers to be able to handle big data sets in an easier fashion and provide faster query can use now integer as a partition instead of a specific impact. So. Yeah, you never know what types of scenarios that customers would like to partition on the integer. So big request that was being requested by the community. So BigQuery now provides that capability. And yeah, there must be several other ones. But in a nutshell, these were the big ones related to BigQuery in the past couple of weeks, months. So. Good stuff. Thanks, Stefan. Let's talk a little bit about quantum computing in Amazon Bracket, Piri. Yes. So this is a fun one. This is an interesting one. Because pretty much 10 years ago, there was an April's Fool blog post on the AWS log webpage that they were bringing quantum computing to the cloud. And it was obviously a joke, but today it's no longer a joke. Now, I have to admit that I have not have any hands-on experience with this at all, but I plan to now, now that this is available. There is absolutely no way that common mortals could get access to quantum computers to play around with. And so having Amazon bring this service around is a, very interesting. So the applications of quantum computing are quite specific, right? And not all 
workloads today actually apply to that. Some that come to mind are going to be some very specific scientific workloads, such as uh, finite element analysis or brute forcing, uh, breaking cryptography. So those are some examples. And so people, <laughs> the first thing that comes to my mind is going to be, oh, we're going to get a bunch of kitties going and bring up a computer to try to break some keys and, you know, hack into the systems and, and stuff of the sort. So let's just step back. Since S2N was introduced, you know, uh, I think two years ago, it is quantum proof or, I mean, the cryptography mechanism there makes it that quantum computing will not crack that, you know, in just a few seconds. You'll need to spend still hours, if not days or weeks. So it's still, you know, but yeah, I mean, this is a amazing technology. It has some very specific use cases. I don't really want to go into how quantum computing works here, but the idea is that, you know, on, on regular systems, we work with bits. And so we have a number of uh, limited possible states that we can represent, which is two to a factor of n, where n is the number of bits you have in your system. With quantum computing, the principle there is qubits. Bits can no longer just have the zero and one value, but can also have the value of zero or one. And that makes the number of states that you can represent infinite. So yeah, I mean, this is gonna be very interesting. And you know, the lifetime of these uh, cryptography algorithms that protect our, all our transmissions, um, SSL and all that, usually their lifetimes are about of 10 years until now, until you know uh, vulnerabilities are made public at least. <laughs> they might have been found before that. But this is gonna accelerate the pace there of cryptography for sure, because it just makes it quicker to break algorithms. And so I'm guessing that with this, we're gonna see the acceleration of enhanced security to actually not be broken too quickly by quantum computing. Right. So a very interesting product by AWS there. Yeah, very. Quantum computing is deep and fascinating, and I don't understand it that well myself. I did listen to a pretty good podcast from the fellows at the Azure podcast about what Microsoft was doing with quantum computing. And the person, they had someone from Microsoft, one of the program managers on there, and uh, she did a really good job explaining And If you're interested in quantum computing, I highly recommend tracking down that episode. It was fun and, and interesting. And I'm sure there are several other credible episodes. That's just the only one I know of. So something to know about for sure. Warner, let's come over to you and let's talk about the latest Magic Quadrant for BI and analytics from Gartner. Yeah, let's talk about, so let me pull it up right here. <clears throat> so this was released just a couple of days ago, and this is Gartner's Magic Quadrant for analytics and BI platforms. So Microsoft has been placed in the Magic Quadrant here for, I believe, about, I think I read it was about 13 years or so that it's been there in the Magic Quadrant, but it's the second time in a row that it has been placed at the top and rightmost of the quadrant. So that means obviously top in terms of vision and top in terms of ability to execute. For many years, Tableau had been the BI platform that had taken that top spot in the quadrant. But over the last couple of years, the just the sheer amount of investment that Microsoft has thrown at Power BI has basically turned the tables around, at least for the Gardner's analysts, where Microsoft is now the one at the top. Now, obviously here, we're gonna see some contenders probably moving on pretty hard. 
I see Looker coming in Look, next. Looker is coming in, yeah. And I mean, I mean obviously, Looker now is being a, a Google, an alphabet company. It's going to get a lot of muscle put in behind it as well. So we'll see something there. The one that obviously just, I guess, shines for its absence is Amazon. Really, nobody's really thinking about database or dashboarding or any of these things in the native Amazon service, right? I guess most people are just deploying something else like Looker, Tableau, Click, or even Power BI on top of Amazon's services. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, what's their product? Quick Insights or something at AWS? And yeah, I think there's even rumors that they're looking at acquiring another company or something they were merging up with like Click. They just buy Click. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> it's like heard. it's the only big major yeah. player in this space that is still independent. And come on, Jeff can buy Click with like the change that he finds in his couch. <laughs> so, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's what's going to happen very soon. Yep. Yeah. No doubt. Let's go and let's talk about the new Secret Manager on Google Cloud. All right. Thanks, Chris. So yes, yeah, so introducing Cloud Secret Manager is actually a better offering right now. So. Um, as many applications require like credentials to connect either to the database or API keys to invoke services, certificate authentication, managing and securing aspects to these secrets often has become complicated by secret sprawl, poor visibility, and the lack of integration just to access these types of secrets. So uh, Secret manages uh, new Google Cloud services that provides um, that secure and convenient method of storing these API keys, passwords, certificates, and other types of sensitive data that organizations may have. So it provides a central place and a single source of truth to be able to manage and access these audit secrets across your services and GCP. And some of these important features are um, like a global name and replications, where um, secrets are a project global resources that you can now choose between automatic or user managed replication policies between your regions so you can control where these secret or stores within your GCP platform. First class versioning, uh, these secret data are immutable and the most operations take place on secret versions, true? So now you can either pin a specific version um, to these types of secrets that you put in the uh, secret manager. Again, most important stuff when managing some of these secrets is the principle of least privileges. So only project owners would have permission to access these secrets. Other roles can be explicitly granted some of these permission to Cloud IAM. So, but again, important stuff is to have the least privileges and only people that are needed or required to manage and see these secrets, true. Audit logging is another one and the strong encryption is guaranteed. So anything in RAS and in motion for sure. And VPC service controls. So again, secret manager is available at Google for all customers right now and it's in beta. So either people are using tools like Burkless, which is another one open source tool, or other organizations are using ASHICorp Vault. So again, secret managers, cloud native feature and services that are, is available on GCP. So highly recommend people uh, look into it. Yeah, yeah for sure. And for now, I'd been using a lot of uh, cloud KMS on GCP, and so this service makes this a whole lot easier compared to decrypting on the fly with cloud KMS. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. We're going to wrap the Google updates. There are two other important topics. In fact, probably one of the most important ones that I wanted to highlight for our listeners is Google Next is coming up in April and Pythian will be there in force. We had a very large booth last year and Stefan, you were there, right? 
Absolutely. Looking forward to this year also as well. Yep. I was there. My whole team will be there this year. We're having an even larger booth. So if you listen to the podcast, please drop into the booth, say hello. I'll be there. Stefan will be there. Pyrig will be there. Someone's got to keep the ship running. So Warner, I don't think is coming along this time. But a uh, great opportunity to meet us if you listen. And uh, please, would love to uh, you know shake a hand and say hello if you listen to the podcast. So please do stop by the booth and say hello if you're in and around. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and I just noticed this, I have no official communication. I don't know if you uh, gentlemen have noticed this, but I've noticed that the Google is changing the branding for Google Cloud Platform to Google Cloud. Now, if you look around, platform, the P word has dropped from a number of documents. Did anybody have any commentary? Am I the only one who noticed this? No, I've certainly noticed it. I think it will become, let's say, official maybe at next where they, they, they'll, if there's a marketing play at stake or just a complete rebranding, but I've, I've been seeing that too also. True. So it makes sense. True. So it's Google Cloud. It, the platform is the actual tool per se i mean the if you look at the console but i mean now it's google cloud agnostic if it's maps or any other features or so yeah interested to see how it will be communicated broadly so yeah i like it i just i feel weird typing gc instead of gcp gcp you know that makes me think of it so i'm going to take some work on that one yeah it'll take a while just remember um, when uh, azure went to the same thing true so it was microsoft azure now it's azure then it so... was windows azure now it's yeah, azure. it was windows azure yeah, yeah. so yeah. but i mean that makes a lot more sense to rebrand than just taking out the word platform i mean that's pretty minor i think most people wouldn't even notice if you didn't bring it up to be honest that's, we're all about informing the little things of this podcast. So let's come back to you, Warner, and let's talk about proximity placement groups moving into GA. Yeah, so this is a feature actually I think we covered at some point in the podcast when it was back in preview days. Now it is generally available, and proximity placement groups are a way to declaratively tell Azure that two different machines should be as close to each other as possible for optimized reduced latency, right? So this obviously has applications for clustering or uh, high-performance computing or uh, distributed databases, anything where the actual physical proximity and the lowest latency as possible between the communication of the different machines can be a big factor in performance, right? You can mix it as well with some of the other features. So for example, we have the concept of availability sets where Microsoft will put it, the VMs in different racks that are completely independent from each other so that you know you get a level of local HA. You can mix and match it so that it will honor your HA requirements and also try to place them, you know, let's say independent racks that are as close to each other as possible. So there is a proximity placement group concept that kind of like can stack over the other concepts that already exist in how to uh, deploy and manage VMs, right? So just something else to keep there in mind for the people that might want to try it out. The team that manages this feature as well has published the tools and methodology they use to measure VM network latency so that you can give it a shot and see if you do get a measurable improvement, right? And you don't really pay for this, so it's just up to you if you want to declare it then you can use it. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting feature. And I like that they expose it to the users or administrators to make those choices. I'm very happy for that. 
but I feel like, like with my other comment earlier about the backups, I feel like this is something that should be happening under the hood without, maybe I'm just spoiled in the cloud native world, but uh, <laughs> it's, it should do just do me. this. Yeah. You know, they should, because they have the metrics that they know best. So it's just something that ML and the cloud can just do for you. Yeah, I think the main reason for this right now, at least, is that not all resources and some particular VM families might not be supported. So I guess they don't want to just turn it on for everybody and then give like a false impression that all the workloads are covered automatically under this. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. And at some point in time, once everything can be onboarded into this type of feature, then they'll, like you said, why don't they just do this for me anyway, right? Like, yeah. what's the downside of giving me lower latency? For anybody. Okay, let's uh, wrap the Azure updates with the uh, accessibility improvements. Yeah, so this is some pretty cool stuff. It's uh, something that we don't think about a lot, unfortunately, and it's, you know, how the world is not the same for everybody, right? And there's a lot that can be done nowadays, especially with AI and the advances in computer speech, hearing, transcription, and vision for people with some sort of disability, right? So, for example, we covered in the podcast before the Azure Cognitive Services, and these are just improvements that are being done at the cognitive services to attack specific accessibility problems. So, for example, we have the immersive reader is one that I believe I covered before, which helps people that have learning issues with reading and helping them highlight and bring up words. They bring the focus into specific words when you're trying to read and things like this. So, for example, now we have this new capability that is part of the cognitive services that is called a custom neural voice. And what this does is that I can take a clip from Stefan's voice and use it to train the AI in the cognitive services so that then I can generate other clips that Stefan has not read but they sound like Stefan. So I guess you could do something kind of like evil with that, maybe. Plenty but, of things. But, <laughs> I, I, but I could that coming. <laughs> yeah, I can. Maybe I should record my boss saying that I should get a raise and then yeah. replay it to HR. Anyway. Well, um, I'm thinking a teenager mom said. <laughs> yeah. But the idea is that, for example, the example they provide is that this lady that is apparently famous with children in China, that she obviously would not have the time to record a thousand different stories for children to like, you know, for them to listen to. But with a few hours of her training this custom neural voice AI, then they were able to just, you know, let the computer actually generate the reading voice for all the other books and she just had to invest a couple of hours on it and then the kids basically like listening to the books because it's like I said like a familiar voice that they're used to from listening to like a kid's show or something like that right yeah, so well, kind of like neat creative uses that are actually positive for the world not like all these others well, dystopian scenarios that we come up with all the time well I mean there is going to be the war on truth and that I don't really want to take us into that but I do think of like audible you know when I listen to an audible and it's not read by the author but I follow the author maybe on YouTube or their podcast or something it's a little kind of disappointing when I, like I want to hear them on audible so I mean this may be a way to fool me and you know I know it's a semantic but uh, you know could be good with that yeah, uh, yeah, could be. 
All right, let's come back to AWS and wrap that with another thing I don't think about all that often these days, automating OS image builds, something we used to do a lot more of, at least when I was younger. Uh, Period. why don't you talk more about that? Right, so this one was particularly interesting to me because I'm a heavy Packer user. Packer is a tool by HashiCorp that helps you build some images on various clouds or even locally. And so until now, whenever I needed to create some images, that was my go-to tool. However, with the coming of EC2 Image Builder, so this gives you a graphical interface to do this, and obviously there's an API in the back end to still work it, but what I really like about it is the addition of adding server tests to your image. So you can test for stuff. Let's say um, you know, I install a Java, I want one of my tests to actually confirm that Java's installed and to print out the Java version to make sure that my image is consistent with what I asked for. And so this actually, was something you know that took some time to build with open source tool it comes to mind like server spec or, or something like that and you, you know that was time consuming to build and this is just with a few clicks in the gui you can add your tests and it's very nice a very nice product that one was quite interesting to me yeah definitely I, I like the testing aspect well that was what we saw that was most important in the cloud updates in the last few months so we're going to move on and talk about our cloud age productivity tip This month's productivity tip comes from Pyrig. We love productivity tips, so if you have one, email it in to datascapepodcast at gmail.com, and if we use it, we will send you swag. Pyrig has copious amounts of Pythian Datascape podcast swag, I'm sure, so uh, why don't we go ahead and talk about Awesome Screenshot, the Chrome plugin, Pyrig. What is it, and why do you like it? Right. So this is another little Chrome plugin that I use a lot. So it's called Awesome Screenshot. And it basically allows from the browser to take some screenshots, and not only in the browser itself, but on my desktop too. It can also record video. It can capture an entire web page without me having to scroll down. And the very most appealing feature to me is the ability to edit before saving the file. So I get the option where I'm showing my screenshot and I can actually draw on it some things. So I'll point an arrow to this important part, underline this other thing, um, I add text and so on. And so, you know, my workflow of making a screenshot, opening it in an image editor and doing all that is all combined in one and makes it like very easy to use. And then, you know, I can, shoot that screenshot on Slack to someone and so on to my customers. And so it's a little plugin I use all the time. I thought I'd recommend. Yeah, it sounds handy. I do a lot of screenshotting myself, but it's a multi-stage process and it depends which computer I'm using. How about you guys? Anybody using awesome screenshot? This is the first time I've heard of it. I just have the good old Windows snipping tool, but it doesn't really help with a lot of the other cool stuff that Pyrrhic mentioned. So I'm going to have to take a look at it. I need no, an upgrade. It's first time for me, Drew. So again, I was copying, pasting, or I have another tool, which, or I use Snagit, just a screenshot, whatever I wanted within the documents, Drew. Mm-hmm. I had one that was similar, but it was like PDF magic or mage where it captured the scrolling page of a browser and saved it in PDF format. But this is a nifty tool, and thank you for the tip. Yeah, okay. I installed it as well as we prep for the show. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us. You can do that by telling a friend about the podcast and where you listen to it, or perhaps by writing a short and honest review on something like iTunes, or maybe even tweeting about something that you heard. Thanks, and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.